Chargers? Yeah, I know. Oh boy. We'll see. So let me uh, pray for us and ask the Lord's help in that, and then uh, we will get started. Let's pray. Father, thank you that uh, we get to have this opportunity on a Sunday morning to gather together with your word open before us to ask important questions and find important answers that are true in your word. I pray for your blessing on our time this morning. I pray that you would work in the hearts of your people. I pray that you would help us to be diligent and uh, that we would learn of you and you would work in our hearts by your spirit this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so you've got your handout there in front of you. And um, we're going to be looking at a lot of verses. And so what I've done today is um, I've put the verses in the PowerPoint. And so um, you'll be able to look up there and see them if you, um, so that I have less fear of going too fast for you. But you can take notes that way and whatnot. We'll see if we like doing it this way. Um, it's a lot of slides for us to look at, but um, I think it might be helpful. We spent last week talking about the doctrine of justification. And um, in that, um, Pastor Stephen did a good job of pointing out for us just how central that doctrine is. And that if we lose that doctrine, if we mangle that doctrine, then we lose and we mangle the gospel. The church stands or falls upon that doctrine. It's that central. And so we talked about justification and looked through uh, these different aspects of it. And of course, we've talked about it a hundred times before, and we'll talk about it a hundred times again. It's that important a doctrine. But when we think about justification, we kind of think in terms of courtroom, don't we? We think in terms of uh, rulings by a judge, verdicts being rendered that have to do with our guilt and our innocence. Um, and so it, it can seem a little cold and a little distant. It's not. And the more you dwell on it, the more beautiful and glorious it is, and the more you are thankful for it. But it can seem um, to be legal, a legal discussion. But when we come to the topic of adoption, which is a closely related topic that we're going to look at in our first section today, now we're not talking about courtrooms. We're not talking about verdicts rendered. We're not talking about God as judge though he is that, when we talk about the topic of adoption, we're talking about God as Father. We're talking about a relationship between us and him. And so it, it brings a doctrine that perhaps can seem, um, maybe at first blush, like it's a little distant or a little technical or uh, a little ivory tower or something like that. And I want to encourage you, and I think you've you've come to the, the realization that that is indeed not the case. But when we come to the topic of adoption, that brings it right into the family. That brings it right down to what is important. And uh, something that we can get our grasp on. It's all important, but we can see and feel the importance 
uh, uh, anyone who has known someone who's been adopted, perhaps you've been adopted yourself or you just think about the notion of adoption, it's very, very personal. Someone who was not in the family had no right to a claim on uh, the mother and father's affection or inheritance or relationship is brought right into the family. Taking the family name, gaining access to the father as father, and the inheritance that goes with that. And so uh, you can see that the topic is a, a very, uh, very important one for us. And it's near and dear to our hearts. Perhaps you've thought about it a lot. Perhaps you haven't. I think for those families who have uh, undergone adoption or been um, uh, have, have dealt with adoption in one way or another, maybe it's a little bit more um, uh, immediately tangible, but all of us can see pictures of this. And of course, this doctrine of adoption is not one that theologians came up with to make a distant doctrine of justification more personal. This is a biblical topic. It's a biblical doctrine that is discussed in Scripture. And and when we talk about adoption, we are addressing the reality that we've already talked about regarding mankind in our fallen state, that we don't have any claim upon God. We have looked and seen the fall and the, the effects of the fall upon mankind in His thinking, in His loyalties, in His actions, in His nature, that we've been corrupted in every part of us. We've become rebels against God. We've been, um, we have uh, been in a state of enmity, being enemies with God as a result of the fall. And so how can those who are in such a condition have a claim upon God? How can they make that transition? So ask the question here, how do sinful humans, and there's so much wrapped up in this term there, isn't there? sinful humans. How do sinful humans become children of God? When we think biblically about the idea of the effects of the fall into sin upon mankind and his nature and his affections and his loyalties and his actions and his thoughts and everything about him, we have to ask this question, how could such a one ever become a child of God? which brings us to the topic of adoption. We talked about justification last week, and so I would encourage you to look at uh, chapter 11 of the Confession once again. You can see the logic and the progression of the Confession, why it's laid out the way it is. And it brings us to this question here about sinful humans uh, becoming children of God, right? And so we look at first on your list there, Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption, to himself. It's a biblical notion. It's not just an alternative way of thinking about uh, something that theologians came up with. It's biblical language. It's a biblical question, and it's answered by the Bible. Paul says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. This is in that great section in Ephesians chapter 1 discussing the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, that He predestined us, and we've talked about that, uh, 
But he predestined us for what? For adoption to himself as sons. Notice, God is the one adopting. He's the one acting. He does the predestining. He's the one who does the adopting. It happens by His plan and His purpose. And it happens and comes about for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It's through Jesus Christ. It's according to the purpose of His will. It's by His action. It's by His intention. It's by His plan and purpose. And it's by means of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And by that means, God adopts Christians to be His own children. He takes upon Himself that action. And so that's uh, in, in uh, pretty concise form here in Ephesians chapter 1, listed among that litany of great spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, includes adoption, being brought right into the family by the action of God according to the purpose of God and accomplished through what Christ himself has done. But it's not only there. Paul also writing in Galatians chapter 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. This was God's intention. It was His purpose. It was to His design. And it goes all the way back to when the fullness of time had come. It had been planned beforehand. God knew it was going to happen. Things had been set into motion. And when the time had come, when the time was right, God sent Christ to redeem sinners so that they might be adopted as God's very own children as God's very own children. Just a side comment here. When it says adopted as sons, that's not intended to say anything negative about daughters, but in this context, in the Roman world, there was greater privilege connected with being a son than with being a daughter. And so there was a greater emphasis on the inheritance, on the, the honor bestowed. There was a, a, a position change. There was a a very great thing that had been accomplished, a greater thing accomplished in the adoption of someone as a son in that Roman world, as opposed to being adopted as a daughter. And so it's not, this isn't written as if sons are more important than daughters. The emphasis is on the fact that in this culture, sons were more important than daughters. And what's the kind of inheritance that we get? The good one, like the sons got, whether we are sons or daughters of God. That's a freebie. And so as we look at uh, the way the confession jumps into this, chapter 12 and the beginning of paragraph 1, all those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of of adoption, all that are justified that we talked about last week. God vouchsafed, He promised, He made it so, He gave a gift such that it would be the case in and for the sake of His only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. Right, so that's the way the confession uh, wants to word the things that we just looked at there. Okay? 
And so you can see that the, the wording here uh, comes from these passages that we looked at. The, the doctrine comes from these passages that we looked at. You can see that it's a, a clearly biblical statement, which is what we're trying to examine. We're trying to look at the confession. We're trying to see, does it accurately represent biblical teaching? Of course, it does not take the place of Scripture. It is not held up alongside, certainly not above Scripture, but it is an interpretation to us, a representation to us, intended to be, of what Scripture teaches on these topics. And as I look at that, I see that being a, a good summary of what we just read. And so, we have another question as we, as we move along here. According to the Bible, what blessings come with being adopted by God? We can see that adoption is a biblical doctrine. It's an intention of God. It's according to His plan. It's according to His purpose. It's accomplished by His action. What blessings are attendant with it? Now, we're going to work swiftly through this, okay? And you've, you've uh, got the list there. John 1.12, To all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Those who receive Him, that is, those who believe in Him, are given the right to become God's very own children, to have a claim on God. And this is reflected in adoption, isn't it? That you might love the neighbor, the neighbor boy, right? You might, you might have a great relationship with the neighbor boy, but the neighbor boy doesn't have an actual claim upon you as dad or mom until an adoption takes place. And then there's a legal claim. Then there's a, a relationship that's fully established. It's a right, and it's been given to whom? To those who receive Him, to those who believe in His name. This implies that right had not been there before. That right is not there for those who do not receive Him, those who do not believe in Him. That right exists for those who do. Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs. There's that claim. There's that something that comes from the relationship. It's not just the warm fuzzies of being able to call him dad. There's, a, there's an inheritance involved. They've been made children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. There's an inheritance that comes with this new relationship. It's not just the fact of a relationship. There are things that go with it, blessings attendant upon that relationship, like inheritance. You, you've been brought in and made an heir. And that's where Paul is using that language here of adopted as sons, because the daughter was not an heir, but the son. And we've been brought into that position, the heir. And so that's Paul's language that he uses there to that effect in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17. As God's children, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. As God's adopted children, we have an inheritance from God. You're going to see that language show up as we continue on in paragraph 1 of the confession. And by the way, if you have it open in front of you, um, I've got one left up here that I can hand out. If you don't have a copy of, of the confession, I've got, I've got one here. Does anyone want to... All right. You betcha. Okay, thank you. 
We continue. Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. You see the giving of the name to the child of God. Just like when a person is adopted and they're brought in and they receive the new name. They have the inheritance. They have the very name of the Father who has adopted them. And that is the case here in uh, the language of the New Testament, uh, John writing in Revelation on this topic, that, that uh, the one who conquers, that is the, the genuine Christian, on him I will write the name of my God, uh, says God, and, and uh, Christ says in my own very name. Right? We have his name put upon us. We continue in, don't dial me yet, battery. Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And of course, we're familiar that that language, Abba, that's in the, the Aramaic, it's a, it's a term of intimacy that, that you uh, you would refer to your own father as Abba, but you wouldn't refer to anyone else as Abba. There's that intimacy, that, that, that relationship that's been established there, and, and we've received the spirit of adoption. That is, the spirit is the one who joins us to the father by adoption. He is the one, the spirit is the one who establishes and maintains that relationship between us and the father. It's not our natural right and it's not our own nature as fallen creatures, but it's established by the work of the Spirit so that we are put into that relationship, maintained in that relationship, fitted for that relationship. So, we have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. And then Paul elsewhere, Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Right? For through him, we both, that is Jew and Gentile, those who were at a distance and those who were close to God have been brought together. Through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jew and Gentile believers alike have access to the Father. How? By means of the Spirit. Okay, it's the Spirit who works and accomplishes this. Psalm 103 and verse 13. This is a great passage about how God views His people. And we get to verse 13 in that passage. As a father shows compassion to his children. Remember, we who were not children, we who were on the outside, we who were at enmity with God, were rebels against him, have been brought in by the Spirit through the work of Christ, by the intention and plan of the Father, so that we've been made his children, we've been made heirs, and as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It's not just a name, it's not just an inheritance, it's not just a bedroom to sleep in, it's compassion. We've been brought into a special relationship with the Father so that He looks out for us. He cares for us. He has compassion upon us. 
the way it'll be put in the confession is we are pitied. Meaning we, the, the, another word for this compassion word here, that special care and attention is given to us. Likewise, in Proverbs 14 and 26, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. God's children are protected. They're pitied, they're protected, they've got access with boldness and able to cry, Abba, Father, and they are provided for, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. He takes care of you, and so you cast your anxiety upon Him, not just because He's a good listening ear. He's a good listening ear, but He also gives uh, attention to taking care of our needs, so we are provided for. Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. There's another blessing. Remember, we're asking the questions, what are the blessings that are attendant upon being adopted as God's own children? Discipline from Him is a blessing from God that He would see us going astray and He would put into into play certain things that would discipline us to teach us not to follow that path. That for our own good and for His glory, we ought to walk in obedience to Him. And so, He disciplines us. And that's something that's unique to the children of God. Right? We, we have a number of families here in, uh, in our, our church, of course. And, and, but I discipline my own children. Right? And the other children might say, woohoo! You know, I don't have to be disciplined by Pastor Brennan. And my own children get to be because that special attention, that special blessing is for my children and my children only for which they are very grateful. <laughs> Lamentations 3.31, for the Lord will not cast off forever. This is a blessing of being a child, right? when you are brought into the very family, that though you receive discipline, it's not discipline for the purpose of casting off forever. And that's the case with God and His children, that though there, there, there is discipline from God, and sometimes that chastisement can be pretty intense, yet it is not intended. It does not lead to us being cast off. That is a blessing of us having been adopted, being brought in. Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption, that this not being cast off is forever. The spirit of adoption who is at work in us, uniting us to, uh, to Christ, the one who has brought us into the very family of God, also seals us all the way for the day of redemption. That's a blessing that is ours through, um, through adoption. On your sheet, does this say Hebrews 1.4 or 1.14? 14. 14. It should say, it should say 1.14. This is a typo uh, up here. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That is, by adoption, we are brought into the family and made heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of salvation. Hebrews 6.12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. There are heirs of the promises, and that is those who have received adoption, those who have been brought in, have been made heirs. They inherit salvation. They inherit the very promises.
promises. And as we look at the confession continued, we read the, the part earlier introducing the idea of adoption. Here we continue on in 12.1, by which they are, t- that is adoption, they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have His name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by Him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. What a blessing is ours in adoption, that we who were on the outs and had no claim have been brought into the very family of God to have these very blessings. All right, so that's that topic of adoption, and that is a uh, glorious topic that we ought to dwell upon, and, and it, it, it is attended with many, many, many blessings, but it's, it's very similar to the topic of justification, but isn't it more intimate? Isn't it less legal? Isn't it uh, a picture? We're talking about crying, Abba, Father, like Daddy, Father, right? That we are pitied and we are protected, and Scripture speaks of our adoption in that regard, Okay. Any questions on adoption before we move on to the next chapter, which is sanctification? All right. Chapter 13 of sanctification. Uh, That should say question three. Oh, well. What is sanctification and how does the New Testament use the term? What is sanctification and how does the New Testament use the term? We're going to go through a number of passages that will um, help us understand this topic. But before we go too much farther, sanctification is a word that we use. And, And usually when we think of sanctification, we are thinking of the ongoing progression in obedience, uh, in godliness of the Christian life. That we realize when we come to faith in Christ, we are not, um, uh, we are not holy in in everything that we do, in everything that we say, in everything that we think. Right? We're not uh, as as holy as we will become. And as you as you observe the Christian life, you see God working in the Christian, so that uh, as time progresses, there becomes a greater maturity and a greater holiness that shows itself. That word sanctify is related to the word holy. It's the word holify, if that were a word. It's not. So we say sanctify, to be made holy. Okay. So there are a couple of ways we can think about that. We usually think of progressive sanctification, that as we progress through life, we grow in sanctification. But there's another way that we can think about it, and that is the fact that When we go from being not a child of God, when we go from being a uh, rebel who has rejected God, is is not the recipient of grace yet, to to believing in Christ, that moment is sometimes referred to as sanctification. In other words, sometimes the Bible, actually often the Bible will refer to that as the moment we were sanctified. And if we only think in terms of progressive sanctification, we'll be confused. 
we'll look at that passage that will say something about when you were sanctified or those who are sanctified, and we'll think, wow, those must be the really holy people. They somehow made the cut. They, they jumped over the bar and, acquired, and, and, and achieved sanctification, and so wow, we'll misunderstand the passage. The Bible can use the term both to refer to ongoing progressive sanctification and to refer to a, a, a sanctification that happens at the moment we come to Christ. We are sanctified. So often we, we, we need to avoid confusion by understanding the Bible can use one word in multiple different ways. We do this all the time. And the Bible can do that as well. So let's not be confused when we read the word sanctify and think, oh, that must mean only progressive sanctification. It may mean that or it may not. It may refer to a definitive sanctification that happens when we first, first come to faith in Christ. And so I want to look at a couple examples of this definitive sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, remember what Corinth is like, by the way. Ever read Corinthians? You blush when you read Corinthians, right? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those holified, called to be saints, right? To those who have been sanctified. Does that mean that Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, well, the whole church is a mess, but there are a couple of guys, a couple of, a couple of people, men and women, who are mature and have achieved sanctification in their life, and everybody else is just kind of, kind of crazy, and they haven't really gotten there. No. He's talking about those who have come to faith. They are saints. Those who are in Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a position, and it's a definitive change that has happened in them, that they have been sanctified to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is something that has already been accomplished. We could look at 1 Corinthians 6, 11, same church, same letter, and such words are you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now, wait a minute. If, if he were talking about ongoing progressive sanctification, shouldn't this be the other way around? I mean, Pastor Stephen made a big deal out of talking about the relationship between justification and sanctification, and we've talked about this a number of times, that, that uh, a person is justified by faith in Christ, they are declared to be righteous, and thus God works in their life afterwards, and so usually we talk about someone being justified first, and then later they are uh, sanctified in an ongoing progressive manner, but here the language is the other way. You were sanctified you were justified. He's talking about a definitive change that has happened of sanctification when someone comes to faith. The Bible can use that term sanctification to talk about the moment of conversion and the definitive uh, thing that happens there. First Peter, to those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. When are we forgiven of sins? As we are ongoing in our, just, uh, in our sanctification, are we, uh, do we finally, after we've been, become obedient enough, become holy enough, do we finally achieve forgiveness of sins? Absolutely not. Chapter 11 of the Confession made very clear on that. Our reading of Scripture uh, is obviously consistent with that. And so we have here uh, not not ongoing sanctification being referred to here. 
we're talking about a definitive sanctification. When someone comes to faith in Christ, there is a change that happens in them. They are, they are positionally changed. They were outside of Christ, and now they are in Christ. But there's also a definitive change in their nature. They weren't, uh, they're, they're not the same old uh, you know, cur dog that they were before they came to faith in Christ. There has been a change. There will be more. But there has been a change, so we will refer to it as definitive sanctification is the beginning and ongoing sanctification uh, in this discussion. So we look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, among all Christians. Romans 6, 5, and 6, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, there's a definitive change. When our old self was crucified, so that the body of sin is brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, you can hear, you can almost hear the chains breaking. That's that moment of sanctification, of definitive sanctification. The chains are, are broken and we are no longer enslaved to sin like we were when we were in unbelief. So it's not just a positional reference. It's not just, uh, well, I used to be outside of Christ and now I'm in Christ, though everything else is exactly the same as it was. No, there's been that noise. The chains have been broken. The this, this slavery to sin has been done away with. There is a change. And this change is brought about, is accomplished by means of God's work in His Word. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. So... There is a change that happens as we are initially sanctified by faith where we are placed into Christ and those chains are broken. There's a real change in us and there's an ongoing progression of sanctification in the life of the Christian. And how is that accomplished? By what means is that accomplished? By the Word of God. By the Word of God. Jesus in His great high priestly prayer in 17 of John says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It is accomplished by the Spirit of God in using the word of God in the life of the Christian. Speaking more uh, effusively on the topic, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, Paul is praying there that according to the riches of His glory, He might grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The work of God in sanctifying us is accomplished by the work of His Spirit, strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. The Word of God, useful, in the hands of the Spirit of God, is accomplishing sanctification in the life of the believer. It's the work of God. He's changing us. 
He's changing us and making us new, and He's conforming us to the image of His Son. He's fitting us for heaven. He's fitting us for His own family. We who have become adopted sons are fitted for the family. 1 Thessalonians, Paul again, chapter 5, verse 21, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who does the sanctifying? The God of peace. You see, there's a, this, the, the, the initial definitive sanctification that happens isn't finished, isn't completed. It needs further work, and He accomplishes that, and that is that uh, progressive sanctification that goes on. We look, uh, sorry, we look also at Romans 6.14, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You see, the transition for being under law outside of Christ, and we've been transferred positionally into Christ under grace, has consequences. And that is that sin will have no dominion over you. Sin is not your Lord anymore. Now, that's not an expression of uh, me exhorting you, telling you, hey, you need to stop, um, you, you need to make a change so that sin will stop being in dominion over you, Christian. No, it's making a statement. This is the case. Sin is not your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. Now, there are obedience things that go along with that, but even there, it is the Spirit of God who is at work, uh, who is at work accomplishing them. Galatians 5, 24, for those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's a change. There is a sanctification. There is a definitive change, and it's an ongoing uh, result in us. Colossians 1, 11, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. We are strengthened. We are built up by Him. He is the one who is accomplishing this in us. The, uh, the confession we're going to get to in a moment says that they are more and more quickened and strengthened, made alive and made stronger in all saving graces. This is the work of God in us in sanctification. Just a couple more of these. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see, we're not passive in this process. We're not taking a nap uh, for the Christian life, and, and lo and behold, God has worked holiness in us. No, we, we are recognizing that that definitive change that has happened, the chains have been broken, sin is no longer our Lord, and that God, by His Spirit, through the, through the Word, is going to sanctify us, and we ourselves also recognizing this sanctification that I had the moment I was saved is to be developed. It's not finished. It's not completed. There's more to it. It needs to be brought to completion. And so we, uh, we seek to obey by the means God has given us. We seek to grow. We seek to do those things so that we are seeing this holiness that was that was given to us at the moment of conversion, we see it grow and come to completion. Hebrews 12, 14, this is 
uh, on topic here, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I think uh, this is a difficult passage, but what's being referred to here, as I understand it, is this, this definitive change that has happened where sin is no longer our Lord, where the chains have been broken and we have been established as those who are sanctified. That is the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. But it's not, it's not full grown. It's not fully developed. It's not fully evident. It will be more evident as we go on in the Christian life. And so we are, uh, we are seeking evangelical obedience as the uh, confession will often talk about. The fact that we have received grace. We have received this holiness. We have received sonship, heirship of God, and because of that, we are motivated in our Christian lives. We've been adopted. We've received a new name. We've been brought into the family. We have all of those graces and all those blessings, and now we, we just long to honor our Father. And so he says, he says strive for that, that, that we are to, to continue to, to, to see that develop in us, that it's, it's definitive, it's accomplished in us, and yet we want to see more of it because of our Father. And so as we look at the confession, uh, this first paragraph here of chapter 13, they who are united to Christ, you're going to see this is the length, what we've just been talking about, they who are united to Christ, effectually called, regenerated, have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are also farther sanctified, really, and personally through the same virtue by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of all true holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord." And so, in summarizing for us what is sanctification, you can see that the confession labors to talk about the sanctification is, uh, is, is for those who are saved, right? And so, he's talking about those who, they've been united with Christ. We've talked about that. Those who are effectually called, regenerated. He goes through all of the aspects to help us to understand that we're talking about a saved person here. We're not talking about the world we're talking about a saved person here, and there is more to it than we've discussed thus far. They are further sanctified, really and personally, not just definitively, but also practically on and on in their lives by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them so that the, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. Sin is not our Lord anymore. Uh, its, its lusts and its powers are more and more weakened and mortified, and they more and more strengthened, quickened and strengthened in all saving graces. So that over time you can see the Christian is growing stronger and it's bit by bit and it's not consistent. It's not a straight line of progress. You recognize that in your own life. I recognize that in my own life. And yet there is a growing where we are being quickened and strengthened and the lusts of the flesh are weakened and mortified so that you see a growth happening. That's 13.1, but there's another question. If Christians are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, both definitively and progressively, why do we still wrestle with sin? <laughs> why do we still wrestle with sin? 
Well, of course, that's not news to us that we still wrestle with sin. It's not news to the authors of the New Testament. So let's look at some of uh, their testimony on this topic. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This sanctification that's going to happen is going to happen throughout in the whole man. It's not just one part. It's going to happen in every aspect of us. And so may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can expect there to be sanctification throughout our lives, throughout ourselves. Paul will say elsewhere, this great chapter, Romans chapter 7, that it's great in the sense that I identify with it a lot. It's, it uh, speaks very truly about the wrestling match that goes on within us. Verses 18 and 23, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Do you see yourself in there? He continues in 23, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That, yes, though sanctification will result in a change to every aspect of us, Though we won't be perfect in this life, there will be growth in every aspect of our lives. And yet, at the same time, we see, we recognize with Paul that there is an ongoing war within us such that we are not utterly free uh, from any influence of sin. Paul can say here that the law of sin still dwells in my members, right? There is an ongoing wrestling match. Right? So that though sanctification is throughout, it's in the whole man, yet it is imperfect in this life. There abides still some remnant of corruption in every part. And you and I recognize this even about ourselves and about one another. Paul speaking in Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The result in us of this war is that we don't always do what we want to do. First, uh, First Peter 2.11, Peter says a similar thing. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You see, there's the passions of the flesh which are still present with us waging war against our soul. There's an ongoing battle within us. We, we recognize this. And so, the confession will say there is an ongoing uh, warfare. So looking at 13 and paragraph 2, this sanctification is throughout. It's in the whole man, yet it's imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part. It's not like um, I was talking with someone recently about being submissive to God's will. Well, it's not like you learn that lesson one day and then from thereafter you never struggle with that thing again. Or uh, I remember Bob Burroughs always says the last part of the human body to be saved is the right foot because that's the gas pedal foot, <laughs> right? Right, well, okay, I, I, I can kind of relate to that, right? There are still some rem, rem, remnant of corruption in every part, not just the right foot and not just, but it's in all of us whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Yes, there is ongoing sanctification. Yes, it will be in every part. And yet it is a, it is a continual warfare because we live in 
this body. We are still in uh, this flesh. But last question, what is the nature of the ongoing battle between sin and the genuine Christian? What's, that, what's the nature of that battle? Does that mean that we're just downtrodden all the time? Does that, what does that mean? What's the nature of this battle? Well, uh, Paul says in Romans 7.23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There is remaining corruption and... Here's the thing. Sometimes that corruption prevails. You've seen that in your own life. You've seen it in the lives of others around you. That there's not just corruption that's, that's always underfoot. There's not just corruption that, that you're always having victory over, is there? Sometimes it's, on, it, sometimes it's on the ascendancy. And you look at the person or you look at yourself and you think, how can this be? The corruption's winning. Yes, sometimes the corruption appears to be winning. It may much prevail. Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. That we are not under the dominion, though there are moments, though there are times when we bow to sin as if it were our Lord. When we act as if sin is still our master because once upon a time sin was our master. We might still respond in that way. I use the example of someone who uh, maybe was in the military and got used to following directions like uh, in training that their drill instructor might come along and and make them, you know, uh, Travis, give me, drop and give me 20 push-ups. And, and okay, and that's what you do because you're trained to do that, right? Well, 15 years later, you're out of the military uh, you, and you run across that drill instructor while you're walking down the street, you know, and he says, Travis, drop and give me 20. Well, if you're well enough trained by that, if you had to do enough push-ups in that context, it's possible you might be in the push-up position before you realize, what am I doing? I don't have to obey this guy. Well, that's how we are with sin, that, that, it, that it says, drop and give me 20, and we find ourselves at number eight before we think, what? Sin's not my Lord anymore. Sometimes it may prevail, and yet Paul says here, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So, there is a continual supply of strength by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And the regenerate part of us does eventually overcome. Paul says here, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That though there are times when it looks like sin is Lord, yet by the working of God, in His preserving of us, in His strengthening of us, we see that the Christian is being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That, that's hopeful. That's the work of God. We, we 
looked earlier at Paul's words in Thessalonians that, that God himself will sanctify you, body, soul, and spirit. He will accomplish it. He will do it. So what does the confession here say on this topic? In which war? Although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life in evangelical obedience to all the commands which Christ as head and king in His Word hath prescribed to them. So sanctification doesn't look like this. Progressive sanctification, though it progresses, has valleys. Times when you would look and say, sin is on the ascendancy. Sin is winning with you, buddy. But sin will not ultimately win with you, Christian. God, by His Spirit, will work to strengthen all those who are in Christ such that they prevail. They end up overcoming. That is the promise of God for us uh, of His work in us by the Spirit to sanctify us. We have two minutes. That doesn't happen often, but I will take it. No, I just, I appreciate it. But I mean, you could ask questions. Any questions on either one of these topics? I know we went fast. I know we covered a lot of material. Some of it, some of it was not new at all to you. You've thought long and hard about. But I appreciate the way it's worded here in the confession, recognizing uh, that sanctification, sometimes you look for it in the life of the Christian, you say, I can't see it. But in the life of the Christian, there will be sanctification accomplished by him. Now we have one minute. Yes, Rick. Now I have 30 seconds. <laughs> Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If we were to read that part, that's Philippians 2, right? Philippians 2, okay. Um, if, if we were to look at that part of the verse by itself and not think about the rest of it, that would cause us to shake in fear because we need to work out our salvation with the fear that we might not succeed and thus fear and trembling. Oh no, I might not make it. Right? Like, like Sisyphus pushing that rock up the hill, right? We just we might not ever get there, right? But Paul doesn't stop there. He continues. For the grounds, that word for means the ground for what he just said. When he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. How is it? What's the ground by which we work out our salvation? Meaning that we put feet on our faith. What's the ground for that? What's the foundation for that? Well, it is God who is working. And what is God doing? He's at work both to will, meaning He is working in the heart of the Christian to give them the will, the desire to obey. That's the work of God, giving us the desire to obey. He's working in, in us both to will, 
to give us the desire to do it. That itself is from God. It's the work of God in, in us to give us the desire to obey and to work. He is working in us. He completes that work that we do. And so why are we, how are we enabled? How are we able to step out and put feet on our faith? Because we know that just as our salvation was accomplished by Him, so our sanctification is accomplished by Him. Our salvation has feet put on it because He's at work, and so we step out to do the thing. He's given us a desire to do it, so we go do it. We do it in His power, trusting Him. We do it imperfectly, and He still works. So He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that the hand of God is at work in you. Have you ever seen an aspect of your life or reflected upon a moment and you thought, that was God at work? And it causes you to pull up short and realize this was something spiritual and magnificent going on. I didn't even know it. That's fear and trembling. And we go through the Christian life this way, that we recognize what He has accomplished we recognize that He's given us a desire to obey Him because He's, after all, He's adopted us. He's, he's given us that inheritance. He's called us by His own name. He's put a new uh, heart within us, a new spirit within us. He's made us alive and all these things, so we want to obey. So we step out and we do it. That is, all that desire is from Him and we, and we do the best we can trusting Him. And He works and He accomplishes wondrous things. And like Martin Luther towards the end of uh, his life, would reflect on all that was accomplished in him, uh, through him in the, in the Reformation period. And, and people would comment on, you know, Brother Martin, you, you, you sure did a lot for the kingdom of God. And he said, I was just, you know, hanging out at the restaurant with Philip Melanchthon. And God was doing all this stuff. That's how he saw it. God doing those works in Him and through Him. And so that causes us fear and trembling because it's so wondrous. Good question. That was 30 seconds, maybe 31. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the fact that You have adopted us as Your own sons, as heirs of You, not second class. We are not in the back seat. We are not, uh, we are not uh, uh, included just barely adopted as heirs. We are grateful that we get to call you Abba Father, and we are grateful that you continue by your Spirit to work in our lives using vessels like us, working in us and working through us to accomplish your good purposes. We are so grateful. And Father, as we go to the service this morning, may we lift our hearts and our voices in song. May we join in the time of prayer. May we encourage one another in fellowship. And may we be blessed as we sit under the teaching of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.